Good morning. Let me add my greeting to the ones you've already received. I'm glad you're here with us. I'm glad we're here together as we worship the Lord. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're so thankful that you're here. Welcome. You're in the right place. We're glad that you're here with us. We are together, the people of God, worshiping the Lord. And this is the part of our service when we take a significant amount of time to worship the Lord by hearing from his word, as we've just sung together, that God would speak to us, his gathered people, through his word. And so we worship him by doing that. We are continuing in our series through the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, God's word. And so we want to continue to learn what God has to say to us about courageous faith and our faithful God. And so would you join me and pray again that God would speak to us through his word. So let's pray. Lord, you are our faithful God. Thank you that you have spoken to us. Thank you that you speak through your word. Speak to us now. As we apply our minds to it, as we settle our hearts and our thoughts, and we think about what it is you have to say to us, speak through your word. Holy Spirit of God, illuminate it to us that we would be changed by it, that we would be hearers and also doers of it. And Lord, in that, give us courageous faith to follow you. We thank you, God. We worship you in this time. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want you to think about today all of the responsibilities that you have for the rest of the day. Just start thinking about that. Maybe you're like, I have been thinking about that. But start thinking about all the responsibilities you have today in your family. Maybe you have job responsibilities. Maybe you have personal responsibilities. Now think about not just today, but think about your whole week. You know, tomorrow is Monday. Work is coming. So what work responsibilities do you have? What family responsibilities? And as you think about all those responsibilities, are there any of those things that you have that you're responsible for in your areas of life that are challenging to you. Anybody have any challenges in your areas of responsibility? Difficulties? Maybe there are things, as you think about that, there are things that are overwhelming to you. And you're like, darn, I, I wish he hadn't brought that up. I was kind of <laughs> having a nice rest from those things. Well, it is a little bit of a risk to bring that up at the beginning of a message. So come on back to me. <laughs> Set that list aside for a second. But as you think about areas of responsibility, did you know that God has things he wants you to do in those areas of responsibility? That God cares about what you do, not just in this room, but when we leave, when we walk out of here into whatever stage of life, phase of life you're in, whatever this week brings to you, that God has things he is calling you and me to do. And many of those are difficult. Now we could go through and list a, a whole bunch. It's probably as different as there are number of people in this room. But many of those things are difficult. And in order to face them, God wants us to face those responsibilities with courageous faith. That's what we're going to talk about today. Because in the passage of scripture that we're going to look at, God called the people of Israel to courageous faith. He had a task 
for them to do. And let me tell you, it was a difficult task. Different than the ones that you and I have, but also difficult. Think about it. Okay, so we're, we're in the book of Joshua. God has called his people out of Egypt miraculously. He was calling them to take possession of this land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when they first tried to go in, they disobeyed God and they wouldn't go in. And so God disciplined them and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then finally, he brought the new generation into the land. They crossed the Jordan and now they have to carry out this commission to wipe out the nations that were there to dispossess them so they could conquer the land so they could take possession of it. God brings them in. And they defeat Jericho, this great walled city, by God's hand, by faith. They walk around, they blow the trumpets. God brought the walls down and they have this great victory. Then they have to move on to the next place, the city of Ai. And we looked last week at Joshua chapter 7. And they go to fight against Ai, which is not really a big city, not a big deal. And they're defeated because of their own sin. The enemy within defeats them. And that's where we had left it off last week. If you, if you weren't here, you didn't get a chance to catch that message, I would encourage you to go online and, and listen to that. It'll be helpful for you to understand where we are. But now God is calling them to go again and fight AI. So this is a big deal. Their parents' generation failed to take the land. They have just, in the previous Uh, section, they have just failed to conquer this city. And now God is calling them to courageously do something, go and take that city. So as we look at this passage of scripture, we're going to, we're going to find out what does it take to courageously do what God is calling us to do? How is it that you and I can have faith to carry out what he is asking of us in our areas of responsibility? So if you would turn with me to Joshua chapter 8, we're going to continue on there. We're going to look at the first section of verses there. So I'm going to read from Joshua chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. We'll start there. So you can follow along in your Bible, or you can read on the screens. Read along as I read. So Joshua chapter 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand, the king of Ai, and his people, and his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, You shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they have come out against us, just as before, you shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush, and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. 
and they went to the place of ambush, and they lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people, and he went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai, with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces. The main encampment was that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all the people, the men of the city, hurried and went out to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. So... After their defeat, God calls them to go back. Israel has to go up and fight Ai. God doesn't just say, forget it, you failed, let's go somewhere else. No, the plan continues, so they have to face Ai after suffering a defeat. They have a task that they're given. They were defeated before in that task because it was sin in the camp. They had not obeyed God. Achan had taken some of what belonged to God and hid it, so they were defeated because God wasn't with them. But now the people have to go again. They have to go and fight. They have a calling. They have a responsibility. Joshua is commissioned along with the people to go and take the city. He has a calling. He has a responsibility. And this fits broadly within what God has been calling them to do. Joshua is still the leader after Moses is dead. The people still need to go and conquer the land. And specifically, God is asking them in this case to take the second city, the city of Ai. And God says, after they failed last time, this time it will be like Jericho, the great victory. Because God had accomplished Jericho for them. God was with them at Jericho, and so they were victorious. God was not with them the first time they tried to take Ai, so they had failed. But this time, God says, it will be different. It will be like Jericho. But they had to trust God in that. They had to trust that God was actually going to carry that out. That it would be like Jericho. And it would be like Jericho in the sense that God would deliver the city to them, But it would not be like Jericho in the sense that this time the ark of the Lord and the priests are not going before them. If you remember back to chapter 6, when God gives the specific directions they're supposed to go out to Jericho. And he says that the priests are going to go and they're going to carry the ark of the Lord. The ark of the covenant which, which symbolized God's presence. It's like his throne symbolized that God was with them, along with the priests, and the priest symbolized the presence of God. So that went out before them. They had the guards in front, the the military, and they're all walking around. This time, the ark is not going in front of them. The symbol of God's presence is not going before them. Now think about that. Wouldn't it have been nice? They've just gone and failed, been routed. God says, go back and try again. 
wouldn't you have preferred to have that symbol of God going with you? Don't you think it would have been nice for them to be able to look up and go, oh yeah, that's right, God is with us this time. But they didn't have it because they had to trust that God was with them. They had to trust that God was going to do what he said. They're going to fight again, but they have to recognize that God's presence is with them. Now, this is really significant because we might take it for granted. Just Of course, it's God's people. God's presence is going to be with them. But think about what he said before. Chapter 7, verse 12, after the sin, God specifically says, unless you remedy this problem, I will not be with you. Think about that for a second. Is that a good thing to hear? Would you want to hear that? Say, oh, I heard a message from the Lord. He says, I'm not going to be with you. Not good. That, that would be terrifying. And now you have a task to do? And this is no easy thing. They've already failed at it once. But now God says, I will be with you. But they have to trust that God is not still angry with them for their sin. That God will still be with them. They have to recognize that God was satisfied in the sacrifice that was made. Because God said, I won't be with you unless you devote all of the things to destruction. That was all of the spoils from Jericho and, as we talked about last week, the people Achan, who had taken what belonged to God. They were also devoted to the Lord for destruction. And the people of Israel, when God revealed that he was the one who had done it, and he confessed, the people devoted them to the Lord by destroying them, stoning them and then burning it with fire. They had to trust that that was sufficient because if they're going to go up and fight against Ai, they better know for sure that God was satisfied in that. That he wasn't just saying, oh yeah, it's okay, go up and fight against Ai and actually I'm going to wipe you all out. They had to trust that the sacrifice was sufficient, that the cleansing had actually worked. That's what they had to trust God. And so he tells them at the beginning of this passage in chapter 8, verse 1, to not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. It's kind of a reiteration of what he said at the beginning of the book, chapter 1. Do not fear. Sometimes we fear that the Lord isn't with us. Sometimes we fear that we've messed up big enough that God has left us, right? They have to Trust in him. Do not be afraid and carry out the task. Now, God calls them. He says, you have to go fight. Go take all the fighting men. This is what happened. Now, if you think about it, God could have done a lot of different things, right? He could have said, well, you know, AI, you guys kind of majorly messed up there. I'll take care of it for you. And he could have what? Sent down fire from heaven and just gone boom. And the whole thing is a, oh, that's great. Now we don't have to worry about it. God did it for us, right? He could have done that. That's, God's the one fighting. He already told Joshua that. He could have done that. But he says, you have to go. You have to do it. I'm giving you a responsibility. I'm giving you a task. I'm calling you to this. Even though they failed before. Is this difficult? Do you think Joshua was happy about this assignment? Do you think he would have much rather preferred that God just say, I'll take care of it. You guys go on to the next one. I got this, but that's not what he says. He gives them a task to do. 
Now, one other interesting thing that's different than Jericho is that in this case, God says that when they go and fight, they actually will destroy the city, make it a ruin so it won't be rebuilt, and destroy all the people in the city. But the spoils and the animals, the people can keep. Now, they're still all devoted to the Lord. They belong to him. It's his prerogative. But he says, in this case, unlike Jericho, you can have the animals and the wealth. Now, think about that for a second. Achan, last time that we looked at, he kept some behind because he disobeyed God and didn't trust him. If he had just waited and trusted on the Lord, he would have had that provision. Now, the text doesn't tell us why God makes this declaration. It's his prerogative again. But I think it's because, in this case, they had to fight. The spoils of war belong to the one who does the fighting. In Jericho, God did the fighting. God brought down the walls. And so he says, all of it, I'm keeping. Here, they have to fight. And so I think it makes sense. I think it would make sense to them. We have to go fight. But God is allowing, graciously, the spoils. So Joshua lays out the plan. He hears from God. He lays out the plan. We're going to have an ambush. They're going to pretend like uh, what happened before is going to happen again. We'll go up and fight with them. They're going to come out. We're going to run away like we're being defeated. But we'll have this ambush in the back. And when they're all out of the city, the ambush will come and destroy the city. They'll see that their city is destroyed. They'll be caught in this pincer movement. And it's all going to work out great. Now think about that for a second. If you're one of the military people, you go, okay, Joshua, you heard from the Lord, what's the plan? And he says, well, it didn't, last time we didn't conquer the city, but the plan this time is we're going to do the same thing again. And, and you could imagine some of those military minds going, we're going to do the same thing again. Yeah, only this time there's going to be an ambush. So when we draw them out, the ambush will come and they'll take over the city. Okay, militarily, that might be a good plan, but it takes a lot of faith. It takes faith on the part of the people, right? They're going to put themselves in this difficult situation. We're going to pretend like we failed last time when last time we weren't pretending. We just failed. It's kind of a risky situation to put yourselves in. But this time... They're going to trust that God is with them. If God is with them, this time it's going to work. But they have to trust. All of those people have to trust. They have to trust that it's going to be effective. They have to trust that they're not just going to get struck down like they did last time. They have to trust that God is with them. In this difficult task. Now, one other thing I want to point out here. Maybe you notice, as I was reading that in verse 4, it talks about 30,000 men. It says he sent 30,000 men to the ambush. And then in verse 12, it says 5,000. And maybe if you're an astute person, maybe you're like one of these number people, they're very specific detailed. You're like, well, which is it? Did he send 30,000 or 5,000? Well, it's an interesting uh, thing because it's not really specific. We don't uh, know for sure exactly how it is. But if you look at those two different numbers, how do you reconcile? Well, there's two options. Either, when it says he sent 30,000, that's the total group that was sent out on the battle plan. 
And then out of that, he takes 5,000. He says, you go into the ambush. This is kind of like if you've ever seen like one of those movies where they're like, okay, we're on the mission. And they all get together and they're in a room. Uh, and, and, and the person's laying out the plan. You know, maybe there's a board. They're like, we're going to go here and do this. And then they say, okay, now for the really dangerous part, I need two volunteers. And they go, okay, this person and that person. If this is the case, if he's talking about the 30,000 is the whole group, that's what's going on here. So it sounds like he's taking, he's sending all 30,000 in, uh, in the ambush, but he's actually just giving them the whole plan. And he's telling them that plan ahead of time, and then he's taking 5,000 out of that. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that he actually does send 30,000. Oh, that seems like a large number for an ambush. But if he sends 30,000, and he takes the rest which is just an unnumbered group of people. And then out of that 30,000, he says, well, these 5,000 are actually going to fight. And maybe the reason for that is they have too many people. And if they all go up in front of the city, it's going to be obvious that if they are fleeing, that it's fake. So maybe he's like, okay, we got to send. Because remember last time they just sent 3,000. So if they all show up and there's this overwhelming group, the plan may not work. So maybe he sends like, we got to send a bunch of these guys off. But we really only need 5,000 to take the city. It could be that one. Now, it's not that we don't know for sure which one it is. You, you can look at it. You can study it. Come to your own conclusions. It's not entirely clear, but it doesn't matter. Because the point is clear. And the point of that is that there's a group. And out of that group, there are 5,000 that are set aside. And the numbers, in fact, I think it's actually why it's written that way, for you is to read 30,000 and go 5,000 and go, wait, what? What's going on here? And look at it more in depth because that 5,000 are set aside from the whole and the specific language contrasts this story with the story before in Achan in chapter 7. Because the verbs that he, that he uses there to take and to put are the exact same words that God accuses Achan of doing. He took some and he put it in the midst of his tent. Remember how specific it is about that? Here, Joshua takes some, a portion, and he puts them in the midst of the people. Because he specifically says it's between Bethel and Ai. So the obedience parallels the disobedience. It's highlighting that contrast. It's a subtle way, but it's showing the stakes. Before they failed because of their disobedience, this time... They're going to try again, but will God be with them? Will God be faithful to them? They have to trust that this time it's going to be different. So what does it take to courageously do what God is calling us to do? What God is calling you to do? You know, God has things that he's calling us to. We all have callings, we use that term. Areas of responsibility, things that you are responsible for, ways of behaving that you're responsible for. Now, in a sense, we all have broad callings in our lives and specific callings in our lives. So broad callings, I could use myself as an example. I have a broad calling to pastoral ministry. That's a calling that God has called me to as I serve here as a pastor. Maybe God has called you to be a father and a husband. That's a broad calling that God has called you to. But then there are specific aspects of that in how that calling is worked out. Specific tasks 
and responsibilities that come with those callings. So for me, the particular responsibilities that I have as a lead pastor here. And for you, if you're a husband and a father, the specific aspects of how that works out in the stage of life that you're in. So if you're a father of young kids, you're called to be a father. But it looks different when your kids are little than when your kids are older. So there's broad and specific. But there's also callings of obedience. Broad callings of obedience. For example, scripture calls husbands to love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's a broad calling. But then it's specific in how that obedience is worked out. So for example, maybe you, your, your wife is pregnant. I had a friend that had this happen. Uh, his wife was pregnant and she got cravings for nachos. She just couldn't. She's like, I need nachos. And so he had to go down the road to a place and get nachos and come back. If that's the situation, the specific aspect in your life that you're in as a husband, that is how you work out love your wife as Christ loved the church, getting her nachos. But that's not going to be the case for everybody in every situation. Maybe you're at a point in your life where you're, you're like, we're way beyond that stage. Maybe as a husband, your calling to your wife is to remind her daily of the resurrected body that's coming. As she deals with pain, deals with her body, that kind of stuff. See, the way it's worked out is specific. Now, we all have those callings. So maybe you're like, yeah, but I'm not a pastor. I'm not a husband. What about me? Well, all of us are called to be, as believers, a part of the body of Christ. We have a calling within the church, a broad calling to serve the Lord, to follow him, and specific callings within that, specific areas of ministry that God has called you to serve in. Things that he's given you to do. And we as a church, God has a calling for us. Our mission to pervade the back mountain, the Wyoming Valley, and the world with the gospel by making disciples who make disciples and who display the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in every phase of their lives. That's broadly speaking what God is calling our church to do. That's our mission. So we all have these callings in different ways. And Many of them, most of the time, they're difficult. They're challenging. So how do we do them courageously? How do we do them faithfully? The first thing is by trusting God that he has forgiven us. When we know that God is with us, we can be faithful in our areas of responsibility. That's what the people of Israel needed to do. They had a task. It's a tough one. You've already failed at it once. You've got to go up and take this city. But they needed to know that God was with them. They needed to know that God had forgiven them. And we need to know that too. I think we as Christians, we have this persistent notion that God is generally displeased with us. I think because we sin, we fail, we recognize that. We go, I have fallen short. I know what God has asked me to do, and I've failed so many times. But we walk around with this persistent idea, notion that God is there, but he's just very disappointed with me. Now think about this. Is that the gospel? Is the gospel that Christ died for your sins, and now you're pretty much just a big disappointment to him? Is that the gospel? not the gospel. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is how we need to live every day of our lives. If we're going to carry out our tasks, our callings faithfully, we need to understand the gospel and apply it to our lives, to our failures. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that Christ died for our sins, and now he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. What we need to do is reassure ourselves of it when we fail. We've forgotten, generally speaking, in our daily lives to apply the gospel to our sins and our failures. How do we do that? Well, it's a little thing called confession. Now, confession just means saying the same thing about our sin as God does. Confession is different than ignoring, hiding, excusing, or just feeling bad about it. I think we tend as Christians to just feel bad about our sin. We go, oh, I failed again. I'm just going to feel bad about it. That's not what God wants for you. God wants you to confess your sins. Agree with him about them. Now, I'm not talking about going into a little booth somewhere, listening to a spiritual person and confessing it to them, or even talking to somebody else. Can be that. Can be talking to somebody. Can be going to the person you've sinned against and confessing to them. I'm talking about talking to the Lord. Agreeing with him about your sin. And you know what? If you just feel bad about yourself as a Christian, you are not agreeing with God about your sin. Because the gospel tells us that God has laid on Jesus Christ all of our sins. And he paid for them. Now, does God take sin seriously? Yes, he does. We talked about that last week. But confessing means agreeing with God about our sin. What does that mean? It means you talk to God and you say, God, I realize this is an offense against you. I have failed you. I have sinned against you. And you say, Lord, I realize that that means I am deserving of condemnation and death. You also say, God, I can't fix it. There's nothing I can do to make up for it. There's nothing I can do to make you feel better about me. I can't fix it. That's the first thing. Then you say to God, but I recognize you took that guilt. You bore it in your body on the cross for me. That's agreeing with God about your sins. Amen? Then you, then you say, God, forgive me, cleanse me, wash me. I hate this sin. I don't want to keep doing it. And then you say the same thing that God says about forgiveness. And you say, God, I receive your forgiveness that Christ purchased for me. Help me to understand that and help me to live in it. That's confession. That's what we need to do to carry out our calling to confess our sins, to apply the gospel to the places we fail. Because, friends, we fail, right? We're not all in here because we're saying we've never failed. We fail. By the time we come back here next week, we all will have failed. The question is, will we have applied the gospel to those failures? Or will we just say, well, I'll just feel bad about it. That's not what God says. That's not what God wants. And unless we understand the forgiveness of God, that he is with us, we will not be able to carry out our callings the way he wants us to. All right, so the people of Israel, they trust God. They go up. They hatch this plan. Now, what happens? Let's turn back to the text. I'm going to read from chapter 8 again. We're picking up in verse 18. 
So they've, they've gone out, the people are before the city, they, the, the people of Ai, they don't realize that there's going to be an ambush, but they see this army in front of them, so we've got to go after it. Then verse 18, then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, and I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled before them to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, Then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai, and the others came out of the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. So they're here in the midst at that pivotal moment, that pivotal moment. God kept his promise. They had put their trust in him, that he was with them, and he kept his promise. So at that moment, the battle is joined. You know, things are in play. This is going to happen. God speaks again to Joshua. God gives him a command, and he tells him to stretch out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And God would give the city into his hand. It's a play on words, because he has the weapon in his hand, and God is going to give the city into his hand. And as soon as he did that, the ambush sprung. The, 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 the men rose up who were in ambush, and they took the city. Now, the text doesn't say that this was a sign or that they could see it. We actually don't know. Uh, it seems doubtful, though, that they could actually see it. It was not prearranged in the plan. It wasn't like Joshua said, when you see me, do that. God had commanded him to do that, and he, God hadn't commanded him before. And so it just seems like as soon as he did it, God caused the people to to be raised up and they took the city. And it's like when Moses is also having to trust the Lord in Egypt, when the people have escaped from Egypt and they're up against the Red Sea and then Pharaoh goes, actually, no, I don't want to let those people go. I'm going to go kill them all. And the army of of Egypt is coming down, bearing down on the people. And they're like, oh no, what's going to happen? God just brought us out here to die. And then God tells Moses, stretch out your hand with your staff in it and the sea parts. It's just like that. God tells him to do it. He does it, and God keeps his promise. Now, there's another story that this is reminiscent of that I want to turn to, and that's Exodus chapter 17. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Exodus 17, starting in verse 8. Now, this is right after that. This is right after the people have come out of Egypt. So this is 40 years earlier from the text that we're looking at today. It says, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and he fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. When Moses held out his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. 
But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hand, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. You see the similarities there? Just like God was with Moses, so he is with Joshua. They're both battles against the Canaanites. Interestingly, both come after Israel had failed. If you read the first part of chapter 17, they tested God. They said, oh, there's nothing here to eat what are we, or to drink. What are we going to do? It's just like they had tested God before they had failed in chapter 7 of Joshua. Now here, in our passage in Joshua today, Joshua isn't doing the fighting. Whereas before, when Moses was the leader, Joshua did the fighting. But here he's not doing the fighting. So you see the similarities. Stretch out your hand. But there's one other thing. There's more here. So I want to keep reading. This comes right after the very next thing. So verse 13, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book, in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Why do you think God told Moses, write it down and tell it to, uh, to Joshua? 40 years earlier. You think Joshua, the military guy, has forgotten that? You think when God says, stretch out your hand, he's standing there watching his people and he's thinking about that moment 40 years earlier? About the message that Moses spoke to him about the faithfulness of God, that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. God was going to keep his promise. Think about that for Joshua. Then he was a young man. Now he is an old man. He's seen the people of Israel fail over and over and over and over again. God is reminding him in this moment, I will keep my promises. No matter the failures of the people, I will be faithful. There's one other passage I want us to turn to that relates to this. That's Genesis 12. The very beginning of God's people entering the land. This is right at the very beginning of Abraham. Before his name was even changed. He's Abram here. And God called him and said, leave your land and go to the land that I'm going to show you. This is the commissioning. This is the calling of Abram. Very beginning. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Then verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Why is it that it's specifically recorded in God's word that right after God tells Abram, you, your descendants are going to have all this land. The first thing that it text tells us is he went and he pitched his tent between Ai and Bethel. The exact same spot. 
where the ambush was rising up. 400 years apart. God does not forget. He is faithful to his promises. And that's a big theme of the rest of the book of Joshua. God will be faithful in every detail. We're going to get to a lot of things that harken back to the beginning of the book. That's why I'm excited about going through this whole thing together. Because God will be faithful in every detail. So the ambush is successful. God accomplished what he said he would accomplish. AI is given over into their hand through this pincer movement. It specifically says, because the ones that were in front of the, uh, the city that they're, they're chasing, you can picture it, they're chasing them back toward the Jordan River, back toward where they came from. And then the, the ambush springs from behind. So the army of AI is in between. And then they, they go, what's that smoke behind us? And they realize their city is captured and they're stuck. And it specifically says twice in the text that they didn't have anywhere to go because they're stuck in the midst of Israel. Again, a connection to the story of Achan. The things that are devoted to destruction are in the midst of Israel. The question is, are they going to be faithful? Are they going to devote them to destruction? We'll talk about that in a second. So how do we carry out our calling? We have to trust that God will fulfill all of his promises. When we're convinced that God is going to do every bit of his word, we can be faithful in our areas of responsibility. You know, when it comes to promises, God has a memory like a child, like a kid. What do I mean by that? As a parent, have you ever had that situation where your kids ask you about something? Can we go to the park? And you go, well, maybe tomorrow we can go to the park if it's nice, if you're good, and you put all these conditions in, maybe, 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 maybe. And the next day, the very first thing your kid's like, when are we going to the park? Because <laughs> if you make a promise to your kid, they do not forget. God is like that. When he makes a promise to us, he does not forget. He will be faithful to do every little thing. So what has God promised us as his people? He has promised us a lot. Just use one example. God said in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, he said that God has revealed his grace to us so that in the age to come, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. The purpose of the life to come is that God would show us his immeasurable riches. How great are the riches of God? Pretty good. Pretty great. He's going to show us those things. Friends, do you realize that life to come is not a consolation prize? It's not like, well, you know, life is pretty good. Sorry it had to end, but there's something kind of to look forward to. God's promise to us is life eternal, an everlasting life with him, a resurrected body and joy and peace and riches that we can't even comprehend at this point. That's what he's promised to us in Christ. He's going to lavish his riches on us. The question is, do we believe it? Do you believe that today as you go through whatever God has for you? Do you realize that no act of faith will be forgotten? Every perseverance that you do in trust and love and worship toward God will be rewarded. That's the promise of God. We have to trust 
that he will fulfill all of his promises. All right, let's close out this section. So what are the people going to do? Will they be faithful to the Lord? Look at verse 24. When, when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen to the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he had stretched out the javelin until all until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruin, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a heap of stones, which stands there to this day day. Joshua did not relent until everything was done. It's interesting because verse 23 ends with a little suspense. It says they killed everyone, but they took the king alive. When God had specifically said, destroy the city like Jericho and its king, destroy Ai and its king. So it ends us with a little bit of suspense. And there's historical precedent for the kings of Israel not following through on that. If you want to look that up, you can look up 1 Samuel 15 and see Saul, which is in the future, and how he disobeyed that same command. So there's a little bit of suspense there. But verse 26 reassures us. Joshua did not draw back his hand until what? Until all the people of Ai, don't miss this term, were devoted to destruction. Harem. We talked about that last week. All of it. This time, we're going to do it all. This time, we're going to be faithful to the Lord. This time, our obedience is going to be to the full measure. The text is specific there. It says only they kept the livestock and the plunder. And then it specifically mentions according to the word of the Lord. So don't miss that. God said we could do it. We're still obeying the Lord here. And Joshua destroyed the whole city and all the people. They left it a ruin like Jericho, not to be rebuilt. And then it specifically says in Joshua, killed the king and hanged him on the tree. He diligently obeyed all that God had commanded. And it's interesting because then it specifically notes before the sun went down, they took the body down, which is actually a reference to the law of God. Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23. Where God says, if a man has committed a crime and punished by death, he is to be put to death and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. So here, Joshua is being faithful to the book of the law that God had commanded for him to not let it depart from his mouth. How about that? For faithfulness, obedience to the full. And then the last phrase of this section is exactly the same phrase, word for word, of the end of the account of Achan. Chapter 7, verse 26. They made it a ruin. This final time highlighting the parallel between these two stories, the failure because of their sin and their success at being faithful in what God has called them to do. And it's interesting 
that the pagan land meets the same fate as the rebellious Israelite. God doesn't show favoritism. He responds to faith and obedience. Just like the Canaanite, Rahab, by faith, can rescue her whole family. And Achan, the Israelite, by disobedience, can destroy his whole family. Rebellion and disobedience leads to destruction. Faith leads to life. So how do we pursue our calling with faith and trust in God? We trust him with our full obedience. When we diligently follow everything he says, we can be faithful in our areas of responsibility. So what's that hard obedience that you don't want to do because it will cost you? Are we going to be faithful until every last part is done? Are we going to say, well, some part of obedience is good enough. You know, partial obedience is not obedience. We need to be fully obedient to God. So what area is it? Ask the Lord to reveal it to you. What area do you need to grow in holiness? Where do we need to confess? You know, I think as a pastor, I think about it. I think one of the big areas for us, challenges that we have that we often overlook is overcoming materialism. All the wealth that we have and just giving our devotion to all of that stuff. We've been blessed with a lot. It's difficult. Are we going to be obedient? Not love the things of this world. We're going to love the Lord. Ask God, what's that one area that I need to start obeying you in? What's the one thing that I need to be faithful in? Brothers and sisters, as we walk out of here today, God is calling us to difficult things. Maybe they're overwhelming things. Maybe it's just the mundane things. And you say, I don't know if I can just do this another week. God is calling us to those difficult things. And we can do them courageously and with faith. If we'll trust that he's forgiven us. If we'll remember and be convinced that he's faithful to his promises. And if we obey him to the full measure. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for how it teaches us and encourages us and challenges us. Lord, would we be faithful to you to obey all that you have called us? Spirit of God, would you even in these moments reveal to us what it is that we need to be obedient to you in? And Lord, if it's just perseverance, give us perseverance to continue. Perseverance to trust you until we're faithful in every detail. Faithful to the full measure. And thank you that you're with us wherever we go. Because you have made an end to our sin by laying it on Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.